Judges 3, starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went away into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Y'all can have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. Father, you tell us that your word is food, and we're all excited about food. We love eating food, and I pray that you would cultivate in us an appetite for this very vital food. You tell us that we don't live by bread alone. Actually, the most primary, most important food we partake of is everything that you say to us in the living and active inspired word of God. So we pray that you would indeed cultivate this voracious appetite in us for your word, that we would savor it, that we would relish what we get to read and study together this morning. And we pray this in the name of the word himself who took on flesh to serve us and to sacrifice himself for us. The name of Jesus Christ, uh, we pray these things. Amen. All right, so let's talk about the fact that at some point, George Lucas, creator of Star Wars, pitched the idea of Jabba the Hutt and Yoda and Jar Jar Binks. We're not going to talk about Jar Jar this morning, but when you look at these characters, Jabba the Hutt, Yoda, they're absurd. I mean, take Jabba the Hutt, for example. He's, he's comedically fat, like this corpulent blob of a villain. And, and George Lucas crafted this character and at some point said, we need to make these, these stories into films. And this is, the, this is one of the villains in the story. And, and people had to sort of listen to him and, and I guess take him seriously as he pitched this idea. And then he went on to say, and there's this other character, one of the heroes of the stories, 
Uh, it's a little creature named Yoda. He's a shriveled, disabled creature. And, and he's actually a Jedi master. He, he's actually the master of all the Jedi masters. He's the best. It, it's satire. It feels absurd. And when you read Judges 3, it feels like George Lucas perhaps plagiarized a bit, or at least borrowed from the story that God's telling here in Judges 3, the story of Eglon and Ehud. As you, as you reflect on this story, and, and you read throughout Scripture, and you find that actually there are a lot of stories like this, you see that satire is built into the saga of salvation. And maybe that strikes you as kind of inappropriate, because you look at, at what Scripture is saying in terms of the problems, and, and you think, well, the stakes are very high. The, the problems that we are facing as, as a society of sinners, well, those are very serious problems. And yet God so often uh, deals with the problems in a satirical kind of way. We do see that the stakes are high. The problem is very, very big and very serious. We see that first, uh, first of all, right out of the gate in this passage. Verse 12, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of God. So, so this, first and foremost, is the big problem in, in the passage. This is the big problem throughout Scripture, that the people of God keep relapsing into their sinful ways. This isn't just the story of the people of God, well, they sinned once upon a time, and God very mercifully bailed them out, and he saved them. Yeah, that's the story, but they keep falling back into their sinful ways of life. This is a pattern. It's kind of like if there was a, a six-year-old boy and he goes off to school and he has this tendency to steal. So he steals little knickknacks from his classmates and maybe he steals something out of the desk drawer of his teacher and then he gets called into the principal's office and the parents have to come and they sit the boy down and they say, you can't do this. This is bad. Theft is bad. Uh, your life's not going to go well if you keep this up. And he says, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. And then a few months go by, maybe a year goes by, and he's out shopping with his mom, and, and he steals something from Target or Walmart, and they catch it on the surveillance cameras, and he gets called into the security offices, and the surveillance people, the security people, and his mom are sitting there, and they're saying, you're doing it again. You, you haven't learned your lesson. See, it's not just that you've stolen, it's that this is a pattern. This is something you keep doing, and the problem's getting worse. It's a big problem. That's what... Israel is, is dealing with. Their biggest problem is that they keep sliding back into this sinful pattern. Again, they do what is evil in the sight of God. They run after these false gods, Baal, Asherah, whoever it is. This faithlessness toward Yahweh, that's their big problem. And, and as if to illustrate how big their problem is, God goes on in verse 12 to say that he strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, against his people Israel. Now, who's Eglon? The name Eglon sounds like the word Egel. Egel means cow. So when you picture Eglon, Egel, you're supposed to picture Jabba the Hutt. You're supposed to picture this fat, corpulent sort of cow of a villain. He's a big, disgustingly fat person. And Moab, who's Moab? Well, Moab is the nation that hired Balaam the sorcerer to curse the people of God back in the book of Numbers. And in that story, God very satirically converted all those attempts to curse Israel and he, he changed them into blessings. 
It's satire. He was humiliating the king of Moab and the people of Moab. But now that motif is being reversed. Now God is strengthening Moab against his people. And you've got to pause and think about this. Moab, they haven't forgotten about the history between them and Israel. They remember when they tried to defeat Israel and, and they hired Balaam the sorcerer and it never panned out the way they wanted it to pan out. They have a very personal vendetta. They, they have a record of wrongs that they are going to, to want to, to rectify. And, and they're going to want to get their personal vengeance on the people of Israel. And we're, we're told that God is strengthening Moab right now against his people. This personal vendetta, it's kind of like sea bass in the film Dumb and Dumber. When he, when he walks into the dingy uh, stall in the bathroom and he finds Lloyd Christmas, he's like, oh, I know you. I'm a bad person in general, but you humiliated me. <laughs> you, you mocked me. And so now I have this very personal reason to seek vengeance and to get revenge on you. That's the dynamic here. The people of Israel are, are in a big predicament. This is a very serious problem. And to further accent the magnitude of this problem, God goes on in verse 13 and 14 to say, Israel is defeated and specifically the city of Palms is captured. What's the city of Palms? It's Jericho. Remember the story of Jericho? Again, it's sort of a satirical story. God just had his people show up at Jericho in the days of Joshua and they just walked around the city for days on end. And that's, that's God's plans, uh, plan. That's the means by which God will knock down the walls of Jericho. And now God is reversing that theme. Now the city of Jericho has been captured by Moab. And the people of Israel are on, under Eglon's tyranny for 18 years. The, the problem is getting worse. Back in the days of Othniel, last, year, last week we looked at the passage of the first judge of Israel, Othniel. They were under uh, foreign oppression for eight years. But now it's 18 years. That's more than double. The problem is so big. It's getting so bad. And so the people of God take this big problem and eventually, after 18 years living under the oppression of Eglon, they cry out to God, which is the exact right thing to do. That's the exact right thing to, to do. Apparently, it took the people of God quite a while to realize that this was the only thing at their disposal. The only way to deal with their problems was to ask God to mercifully intervene. And this is wisdom. This is the best thing you can possibly do when you face your big problems in life. Don't trust in yourself. Don't think, well, I will come up with a plan to deal with my problems. The best, most wisest thing to do is to say, okay, God, I need your help. I've, I've made a mess of my situation, and I need you to intervene. And, you know, we face a myriad of problems. You face personal problems, just like Israel, where you relapse back into your, own, your old sin patterns, right? You, you look at your life and you think, you know, there are good things that I know I should be doing, and I'm not, I'm not doing those things. There are bad things that I know I should avoid. And I keep, I keep falling into those things. Wretched person that I am, who will save me from myself? I need, I need God to intervene. I'm like a wayward sheep. I need a shepherd. That is so wise. That is so good to cry out to God and say, look, I need your help. I need your help. I, I am not to be trusted. I shouldn't be left alone with myself. I need you to intervene. I need you to get very personally and intimately involved in my life. Apart from you, I can't do anything. 
Maybe you're dealing with relational problems. Maybe there are strained relationships with your family members, with colleagues at work, with neighbors, with friends. And you don't know how to navigate those relational problems. It's complicated. It's confusing. It's kind of toxic. It's, it's difficult. Well, God would say, cry out to me. I invented relationships. I, the, the, the triune God, I have existed for all eternity in a perfect unified relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you, if you need counsel on how relationships are, are designed and how they can work, then you should come to me. Don't trust in yourself. Maybe you're dealing with life situation problems. This, this could be anything. God says, well, I'm the inventor of, of life. I, I know everything. I'm, I'm omniscient. I'm all powerful. Trust me. Cry out to me. Maybe you're just the kind of person who's really stressed out all the time. You're just anxious and troubled by many things. God says, okay, bring that to me. Whatever your problem, say, I, I need God. Cry out to God. The next question is, how will God interact with that problem? How is he going to deal with, with your problem? Well, we see that from time to time, God likes to deal with your problem in kind of a, uh, we could say, audacious way. Here we see a very satirical way that God deals with Israel's problem. God's orchestration of salvation is more than just a mere paradox. It, it is oftentimes satire. And you see this all throughout redemptive history, all throughout the stories of Scripture. So, for example, early on in, in the chapters of 1 Samuel, the historic book 1 Samuel, there's this story about the presence of God, which, which is in the ark, the ark of the covenant. God allows the ark to get captured during a battle between Israel and the Philistines. And, and Israel thinks this is the worst thing ever. Uh, we will never recover from this. Uh, but lo and behold, you find that God has actually allowed himself to be captured by the Philistines so that he can go behind enemy lines and humiliate the Philistines. So the, Phil the Philistines think we've won against all odds. We've defeated God. We have the ark. And so they, they put the ark of God in the temple of Dagon, their, their God, right? To show that our God is superior to the God of the Israelites. And then they wake up the next morning and they see that the, the, the statue of Dagon has fallen down as if prostrate, bowing to the ark. And then the next day, they, they, prop the, they prop the statue back up. And then the next day, they come in and Dagon has fallen down again. And this time his head has been chopped off and his hands have been chopped off. And God is just messing with them. God is just flagrantly mocking them and saying, I, I am not to be trifled with. I, I could beat you so easily. It, it's, it's hilarious. It's laughable. It's laughable how easy this is for me. I, I mentioned the story of Numbers 22 through 24, the story of, of Balak, the king of Moab, hiring Balaam the sorcerer to come and curse the people of Israel. And not once, not twice, but three times, God takes Balaam, the sorcerer's attempts at cursing Israel, and he converts them into lavish blessing on the Israelites. He's just messing with the king of Moab. He's humiliating him. In 1 Kings chapter 18, the famous showdown where the prophet Elijah is up on Mount Carmel fa facing all of these false prophets of Baal. Remember, they're, they're cutting themselves, they're dancing, they're trying to get their gods to respond to them. And at one point, it seems gratuitous. Elijah says, hey, may, maybe try yelling louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's in the bathroom. 
right? He mocks them. He tells them, y'all are fools. This is ridiculous. Your gods aren't real. 1 Corinthians 15, our greatest enemy. How does God say we are to interact with this threatening reality of death? Well, we look at death and we mock it. We say, hey, death, how you doing? Where's your sting? What What kind of power do you actually have over us in the long run? You're nothing. You're nothing. Because we have Jesus who died and rose from the dead. We mock death. In verse 15 and following, it says the people of Israel have to pay tribute to this this character, this king, Eglon, king of Moab. And so they send this guy, Ehud. Now, when you you picture Ehud, you need to picture Yoda. You need to picture kind of a disabled, uh, sort of shriveled up guy. When it tells you that he's left-handed, that means he can't use his right hand. It means he's disabled. Like picture a little Tyrannosaurus Rex arm. You know, he can't wield a sword in the right hand, which is how all the warriors in these ancient days would have been trained. They would have carried a sword on their left hip, and when they draw the sword, they draw it with the right hand, because the right hand is the symbol of power. It's a show of force and competency. Well, Ehud doesn't have use of his right hand. He's left-handed. He doesn't look like a threat at all. This is how Ehud is able to get a private meeting with Eglon. Because the guards are looking at Ehud and they're thinking, this guy is pathetic. He's weak. He looks foolish. He's a cripple. And so Ehud just just walks into enemy headquarters with this assassination plan, with this this custom-made sword on his right hip. You know, they'll pat down the left hip because if there's going to be an assassination attempt, that's where the sword's going to be located. They don't even think to pat down the right hip. Because nobody's going to send this left-handed disabled person to kill the king. He's not a threat. If y'all are familiar with the movie The Usual Suspects, Ehud's like Verbal Kent, Kevin Spacey's character. He just walks right into enemy headquarters and, and nobody suspects a thing. Nobody thinks that this crippled, disabled, frail guy can do anything bad to our king. So we see in verse 18 and following, after Ehud presents the tribute or the people with him present the tribute, he turns back to tell the king, hey, can we talk in private? Because I have a secret message for you. And again, he's, he's not viewed as a threat. So Ehud uh, is allowed to have this private meeting with King Eglon in his private chamber. And when they're in there alone, Ehud reaches with his left hand, takes the sword from his right thigh, pulls it out and thrusts it into Eglon's gut. And this this corpulent cow of a king is so obese the 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 blade goes in and the hilt goes in and it just gets sucked into his girth god spares you no details it's a very colorful gritty seemingly gratuitous story we're told in fact that after the blade went in dung came out god god is giving you this information he wants you to have this information at the risk of seeming gratuitous or gross, God's saying, this is what you need to know. It's almost like Quentin Tarantino is directing this scene in Scripture. And the servants of Eglon can smell it. They, they think, okay, he must be relieving himself. We're, get, we're catching some negative aromas coming from on the other side of this door. And they don't want to, like, barge in on him. You know, he needs his privacy. But they're starting to wonder, like, he's been in there a long time. They're starting to feel kind of embarrassed. And meanwhile, Ehud... He escapes. 
You're shown here in verse 23 that Ehud goes out onto the porch. Your Bible probably has a little footnote there where if you go down to the bottom of the page, it says the meaning of this Hebrew word is uncertain. We don't really know what they mean by porch. And here God is allowing you some space to use your imagination. You know, have fun with this. Like, how did he escape? How did he escape? I mean, was it, did he go outside like on a, on a deck kind of a porch and he, he went down the, the drain pipe or did he escape through the sewer system like Andy Dufresne and Shawshank Redemption or did he just walk out the front door like Kevin Spacey and the usual suspects? It, whatever your theory, the point is very clear. God is humiliating Eglon and the people of Moab. Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. What's the message? God is flagrantly mocking you, Eglon. He is mocking you. He is humiliating you because this is what God does to his enemies. You know this? This is even built into the most famous of all the Psalms, Psalm 23. We all know that Psalm, right? You've heard that Psalm so many times. You know the part in Psalm 23 where it says, God prepares a table for his, his lambs in the face of their enemies? Really think about that imagery. You have this world of wolves, Jesus says, I send you out into the world as lambs in the midst of wolves, but you can be so confident and so audacious that I'll actually sit you down to, to a banquet feast in the face of your enemies, not because you're strong and impressive, because, but because you have me as your shepherd. We will flaunt our victory in the face of God's enemies. We will sit down totally confident and have a feast in the face of of our wolfy enemies. That's how bold we are. That's why God's telling us this story because he wants you to cling to the confidence that you have in Christ. This is why you're given a picture of Christ in Psalm 2 where Jesus is enthroned and all of the nations are enraged and they're plotting and they're scheming and they're up to all these nefarious things. And, and you're told in Psalm 2 that Jesus' reaction to that all of the scheming and raging of the nations, the way Jesus responds is like this. <laughs> he laughs. Y'all are cute. Y'all are so cute. How y'all rage, how the Persian Empire raged, and how, and how Nebuchadnezzar's empire raged, and how the American Empire rages, and how Russia rages, and how China rages. It's laughable. It's laughable. Not scared at all. That, that's what God tells you all throughout Scripture. He is not worried. He is calm. He is totally in control. And he mocks the enemies. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. And at the center of all this satire that we find throughout the saga of salvation, we find a savior. For thousands of years, God has set the stage for, for this savior to be born in the fullness of time. Throughout the millennia, God shows us this motif of the Messiah. So I mentioned the early chapters of 1 Samuel about the ark getting captured and God going behind enemy lines. Well, the second, the second installment of the, the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, starts with a similar picture picture of the ark of God. And in this, this story, early on in 2 Samuel, you see the, the king, David, dancing before the ark. And his wife sees him dancing, and she's embarrassed by him. 
She actually confronts him. He gets home, and after, after he's danced, she pulls him aside, and she says, you know, you embarrassed me today. You, you've humiliated yourself. No self-respecting king should act like this. You have acted contemptibly. And you know how David responds? He says, you know, I hear you, but what you need to know is that I'm going to make myself yet more contemptible in your sight. I'm going to make myself even more debased and humiliated because that's what the picture of the Messiah most fully is in the story of Scripture. It's this king who would come and not reign on his throne and and have everybody just bow to him in his first coming. No, it's a picture of a crucified king, somebody who was scorned and mocked and ridiculed and held in contempt and derision. He's the lion of Judah, but when you look at him, what do you see? You see the lamb who is slaughtered. We see that in this passage in Ehud. The name Ehud, you know what it means? Ehud means, where's the splendor? It's like the name Ichabod. There's no glory. You look at Ehud, you think, this is a crippled, disabled, non-threatening man. There's, There's no threat here. There's no splendor. There's no majesty here. It's, it really is like when Luke Skywalker first meets, meets Yoda on Dagobah. Remember? Luke says, hey, I'm looking for this legendary Jedi master. And he's looking at him. It's this shriveled up, you know, decrepit, decrepit tiny little disabled creature who's acting kind of foolish and weird. <laughs> that's, that's what's going on. Ehud is like that. We're also told that Ehud is a Benjaminite. You know what the, what the name Benjamin means? Benjamin means son of the right hand. Ehud doesn't even have use of his right hand. It's like that scene in Revelation 5 when John has this heavenly vision and he's told, behold, the lion of Judah, right? Son of the right hand. He's told to look at a picture of power and majesty, a lion. But what does John actually see? He sees a lamb, not even an adult sheep. He sees a lamb picture of weakness. Oh, and by the way, this lamb appears to have been slain. That doesn't mean he's not the lion. It doesn't mean he, he, he doesn't have all power and all majesty. It just means it's not going to look the way you thought it should look. God has baked this motif into your life. It's not just in the stories of scripture. It, it's actually on display In your life, God says, consider your calling. Think about your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You were not powerful. You were not of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. So as a point of application, if you are feeling weak and foolish this week or at any point in your life, take heart you're probably right where God wants you. If you feel like, I'm like a lamb in the midst of a world of wolves. I I actually resonate with Ehud. I feel small, I feel crippled, I feel powerless. Well, you're in good company. You're You're in the fellowship of God. God loves to take what is low and despised and weak and small and use it for his own purposes. So if that's how you feel, take heart. And also take heart in the fact that amongst the most lowly and despised of all characters throughout all history, God himself is the leader. 
This is what it says about God and the prophet Isaiah. When God took out on flesh and he dwelt amongst us in this world, here's, here's what he is described like. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected. He was like a man from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was mocked because he was crucified. He was scorned as the slaughtered lamb. And we're told that the word of cross, the, the, the big central moment of all redemptive history, the crucifixion of Christ, yes, it is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And all throughout scripture, this is the big point. Behold the lamb of God. You know, the forerunner of the Christ, this was his big message. Look to the lamb. Look to the lamb. You should decrease. And he, the lamb, should increase. Your life should be exponentially, year by year, more and more about what Jesus is like and how he operates than about what you're like and what you plan to accomplish or how you are scheming to feel sufficient. And let me warn you, you cannot take your value system and, and, and just slap Jesus' name on it. You can't say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm all about the glory of God and the grandeur of his kingdom and then take your, your metric for greatness and glory and just put Jesus' name on it. The, the way you know if you're following Jesus is that your life will look like Jesus' life. So if your big paradigm for like a successful leader is, say, King Saul, right? Somebody who's the opposite of a guy like Ehud, then you're probably not operating with God's value system. To, to behold the lamb and follow the lamb, it means your value system will match his value system. So God will say, look at the lion. We are talking about glory. We are talking about power. But in terms of how that will be manifest in your life, it's going to look like a lamb. It's going to look like service. It's going to look like you experiencing seasons of lowliness. Seasons where you feel weak. Seasons where you don't really have as much control as you wish you had. It's going to look like you following a crucified king. And God says, that's how I am going to pull off my plans for salvation. And you might look at that and say, it looks foolish. It looks comedic. It looks like satire. And God says, exactly. Yes. Yes. My ways will look foolish to the world, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for operating the way you do. Your ways are not our ways. And if we are really attentive, or even just half attentive to what you're showing us in Scripture, it is so flagrantly obvious that we would never, we would never hire a guy like Ehud to be one of the judges of Israel. We would never, we would never plan salvation the way you've planned it the way you've actually executed that plan through the life and death of Jesus. And yet we gather today chiefly and most primarily to celebrate what Christ has accomplished and to, to nourish ourselves and to be reminded of what it means to be followers of the lamb who was slain. So we pray that you would invigorate us for that, nourish us more and more on these stories, these satirical stories of salvation and cause us to have zeal, like the zeal of Jesus for the house of God and to follow in his footsteps. 
We pray this in his name. Amen.